Hi, this is Morgan Michael welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast, where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. I believe that we all have an innate need to be seen, heard, and understood. When we dedicate ourselves to kindness, the ripple effects in our schools can be life-changing. Through this podcast, I want to challenge you to question your assumptions, amplify your insight, and embrace a willingness to go beyond the status quo in education. Together, let's learn how to make a big impact, one small act at a time. Ever wonder what an ex-bomb disposal and paratrooper could teach you about being a better educator? You're in for a real treat. I'd like to wager that after this conversation, you'll see your students in a whole new light. In this episode, we explore a number of important topics, including challenging your assumptions about people, ways to challenge yourself, how nature and contribution can make you happier, and the 140-kilometer multiple-day hike across the North Pole that helped this war veteran overcome the devastating PTSD symptoms of trauma. For more information, visit brunogevremont.com or my website, smallactbigimpact.com, and search for episode number 15. Bruno Gevremont, G U E V R E M O N T. Hope you enjoy this episode. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. Bruno Gavremont, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm so excited to be here and to, for us to be uh, talking about mental health, my favorite thing in the whole world. That's great. So I just want to give a little bit of, of background on you. So for And correct me if I'm wrong, because sometimes the internet can be misleading or incorrect even. But for about 15 years, starting in 1999, you pursued an exciting, almost movie-like career in the armed forces. When I read your bio, I was blown away by the type of work that you were doing from being a weapons technician, a high-stakes bomb disposal agent working in Afghanistan, to work as a paratrooper and then a Navy diver, and then after that, finally being released from the military, but going on to explore the North Pole alongside 12 veterans and and some other individuals through the organization True Patriot Love. But that's not all. You became the team captain of the Canadian team for and competed in the Invictus Games in 2016, and you even met Prince Harry and our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and you've also become a spokesperson for Bell and not only that but you've also become a super successful CrossFit gym entrepreneur so I just look at your life and from the outside it seems as though you have accomplished more in your little toe than anyone can imagine that they might accomplish themselves. What made you want to explore the military as as a career option? And and what sort of inspired you to go down that path, specifically even with the bomb dispersal? 
Right, right. So uh, first, first of all, when somebody reads <laughs> your bio like this, it, you're right, right? It makes it look so well planned and everything fell into and it's just yeah it makes sense right you're just like this is so awesome but it's uh it's always funny to hear it because it's it it, it kind of like it's just mm -hmm. condensed right we put all of this stuff but this is mm -hmm. over years this is over we're talking about the past you know uh, 20 years right the 15 years of service and then and then now the five years since i've been um uh, medically released and I've been doing other things but uh, yeah it's you know uh, the struggle is there and we, we we try to do our best every day and then these things happen and I can't it's just about consistency but to answer your question uh, about serving the military uh, it's actually a really good story because when I was about 10 years old uh, my dad was working out in Africa as an electrician and he was working for uh, you know uh, the foreign services and all these things and uh, and other companies Canadian companies over there and then I got a chance to go and live in Zaire mm -hmm. at the time uh, for a year and uh, at a very young age and getting to travel through Europe you know uh, to get to Africa and all these things I noticed that Canada was such an amazing country um, think about it at 10 years old I was like man like we live in such a great place we're so fortunate and as I came back home I decided to you know I just wanted mm -hmm. to do more uh, to be able to show what we got here and then also saw the need in Africa and the need in other countries um, and then uh, for me the military the Canadian um, history of military uh, is uh, is very well versed and it's 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 got a very um, mm -hmm. good history, right? Uh, we're very, very fortunate that the people before us went and did these great things in both world wars and the Korean War and then the Balkans and then Afghanistan and all that. But the Canadian military has always been extremely well respected and actually uh, on demand in the world every time there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Which is so incredible, and I think um, I think you speak to that quite a bit. That you you were pulled to the military uh, because of that brotherhood and because of the respect that they that that members of the military receive across the world as Canadians, right? And when you think about sort of your experience on the front lines, you know, in Afghanistan, I believe you did two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Is that correct? And then. That yeah, that is correct. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess we, you know, everyday civilians sort of have an assumption of what that must have been like. And, you know, we've got like the movie version of, you know, the red wire or the blue wire and which one do you cut and that sort of high stakes, super high stress environment. What was it actually like to be you on the front lines at that time during your your experience in Afghanistan? Um, well, first of all, it's 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 really important to know that the Canadian forces are some of the best trained forces in the world. We're really, really well trained. And um, when we're overseas doing what we do best is like it just flows so good. It's basically and there's actually a, a good some good relationship with um, like the Olympic athletes that I've seen, which uh, you, if you if you're patient a little bit, I'll go along with it. But it's basically you're training all your life. Right. You mm -hmm. join the military and the, like the, the athletes join the, the, the Team Canada and then they train all their life for this one event. Mm -hmm. And basically it's what happens. You go overseas and you actually do the work that you were trained to do. And we do it really well. And it comes down to the team you're with. Mm. 
the team is is the strength of the military. The numbers, the the cohesion, the uh, logistical operations, everything just runs smoothly because of the individual and the way that we are conditioned. Right. Um, and like I said, the Canadian forces are really, really good at doing. There's not one time where I've ever feared for my life, either when I was getting shot at or almost blown up or anything like that, and then or when I was doing my job as a bomb disposal guy. Um, I wasn't fear like I wasn't fearful of dying or anything like that because we're so focused on getting the job done and it's so almost second nature. Right. Which that, is that's yeah. so interesting and I think I think that piece about it is sort of what enables people in the military to do so well and to survive in the moment and to override some of those those fearful impulses that might pull you into fight, flight or freeze. Is that would you say that's right? That is that is absolutely correct, actually, Mo. You know what? Because um, you don't think about it. Like mm-hmm. when we when we started getting fired at, we didn't think about, hey, where should I position myself? It just happened, right? It just things happen and everything just smooths. Everybody knows where to go. You listen to the word of commands, and then you just start operating as a unit. Right. And and it's the same thing for everything that we do. Either we're doing a transport, we're doing a move, or we're doing a, a you know an observation post, or we're doing some. Everybody just works together so well because of the way that we're trained. Mm-hmm. And basically, and I want to say this word because it's going to be important in our in our conversation as we go deeper down the mental health thing is about conditioning, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to be important. It's also important for the forces to. You know, they need to train us to go towards the bullets, yes. <laughs> not away from them where everybody else would run away, which would be the smart thing to do because, um, you know, it's it, it's dangerous. But the thing is, is that if you're trained and you're conditioned and you're ready to go, we need to do this job, which is a serious job, and it gets to be done. It's second nature. You don't even t- have to think about it. So interesting. And I'd like to sort of dig into that in 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 a if you know in a few moments but i do i do want to touch on this story which really uh it, i found it really moving personally when i heard about this particular experience that you had with a suicide bomber and it might seem like a bit of a tangent but i think that it's really relevant to this conversation because often we have a certain image in our head of the quote unquote enemy can you tell me a little bit about this particular story i, I think you probably know the one i'm i'm alluding to and how this experience sort of challenged your assumption about the enemy and even elicited a sense of compassion in you and I think this is so important because it makes you take pause and it makes you reevaluate things that you think you know for certain about a situation and that's part of what what we're trying to do here in this conversation is to really take a second and to go beyond that assumption of what we think we understand about something and to really question it so can you can you speak to that experience uh, of course, uh, obviously, you know the the uh, the suicide bomber is one of those um, you know events that people ask me to talk about, and I think you're right. It just has such a big impact that actually shook me to the core when it did happen, because it kind of changed things drastically right there on the spot about it. So the story is about um, in Afghanistan when we, um, if I can build like the. The, the scenery here, but uh, basically when I first got to Afghanistan, I was three days in country and we got our first call and our first call was three suicide bomber who had detonated in a full market in, mm. in front of the governor's palace. So basically it was a full market and they detonated. It was total carnage and that set the tone for our tour. Mm. Um, we were the busiest team of the whole 11 year campaign for Canada. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we did over 100 IEDs, and that's not counting the ones we didn't get to or anything like that, which we call post-blast, which is the investigation part and then, you know, uh, picking up the pieces and all these things. So um, we were really, really busy. And But every time we would get a call about a suicide bomber, it was either he was shot or he had detonated. Mm. And what was different from this one is that when we got there, the uh, the point of contact from the Afghan National Police said, no, 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 he's still running around. And then so that kind of changed the dynamics of what was going on because we're pretty big targets over there, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if they have a chance between getting anybody in the crowd or getting NATO soldiers, they'll get NATO soldiers because it's a better, bigger reward. Right. So um, so when we got that, we got back into our vehicle, and sure enough, a few blocks down, we heard that um, the Afghan uh, secret police had caught him. Hmm. And then once again, I'm thinking, oh, they shot him because nobody wants to get near him. <laughs> well, they just shot him, and he's good to go. But when I get there at the corner of the street, I see them holding on to this guy, and he's got switches dangling from his arms. Oh, man. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is this is a different call. This is like, this guy's still alive. Okay. So, uh, there's, that just changes everything because there's different ways to detonate a vest. Right. And that's what you got to take into context when it becomes that stuff, like to, to, to suicide bombers, because once again, the damage that they create is, is incredible. And it's not so much for structure, although it does because they pack it so much, but mostly to just create chaos within mm-hmm. the population is what it is mm-hmm. right and psychologically so, too not just yeah. physical sort of carnage and and obviously the uh yes the the yeah. uh, the physical effects but also the psychological effects on on that community yes absolutely and more so because it's an individual right. and they're they're they're, they're they say something and they, they're proving a point and they're saying this is how dedicated we are to this cause or whatever right right and it, it, it kind of affects people whether the local the local population, us or them or everybody, it's just this big game, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so this guy was was there, and so what we decided to do is that I cleared the area, and then we went and tied him up to a fence so that the other police officer could could uh, evacuate so that they were safe before before I went down to work. Sure. Right. Sure. So once that was done, then I got to think about how am I going to approach this fest because there's. Uh, the different ways to detonate a vest is victim operated, which is the switches that he had. So he's the one who presses on the buttons. Right. There's also anti-removal. So if he tries to remove it, it blows up. Then there's also possibility of a timer. So he's only got certain time to get there. It detonates on its own. Wow. Or there's what we called a chicken switch which is a remote control that if he gets shot or he doesn't want to detonate anymore, somebody else can do it from a distance. Oh, wow. Right? So it's very important that um, that we know these things before we go down, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Because then it, it gets me to look at the wiring. It gets me to look at the whole system and understand what the vest is all about before I start you know, removing stuff and cutting wires. Yes. Um, because it's not like in the movies, right? Um, yes. As a bomb tech, you, you, you don't want to disturb the, the, the bomb unless you absolutely have to. And you don't want to start cutting wires, anything, unless you absolutely have to. Sure. So, uh, because, you know, uh, it could be, there's different ways, right? You got to be a really, to be a really good bomb tech, you got to be a really good bad guy. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> to put your head, to put your head inside theirs, essentially, to yeah. figure out what they might be doing or, or 
which one of the four they might have gone for. Exactly, right? right? So it's cat and mouse kind of a deal. Who's going to sure. be, right? So, uh, but to come back to him, uh, when I approached him, he was, you could feel this energy, this tension that was crazy. It was like this big box of hot air. Like if you step into a sauna kind of a deal. Mm. And, and we were just like in the, in the middle of a street, right? right by, just by a fence. So it, like, there was no reason for it to be there other than the fact that it was our energy mm. of the whole thing. And then uh, I went to work. I understood the the, uh, the circuits and the vest itself. And uh, I started cutting the wires and removing it. And when I did, he let go of this big sigh and said something. Um, and then I just I just walked away, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then I went to the middle of the street and I continued dismantling it, making sure it was safe for us to do the investigation. And um, once that was done, the investigating team came over and I think that's what we want to get to this story is that they interviewed him mm-hmm. and they noticed that he was mentally challenged. Mm. So, um, you know, I would say, um, uh, you know, he was uh, mentally challenged and then he would, had been uh, fasted for two weeks. So he hadn't then, eaten for two weeks. Yeah. So they, they, they say it's prep, prepping for going to heaven, right? So they right. You fast and you pray and you do these things. And, I see. And then they also told him that if he didn't do this, they were going to kill his family. Right. So, um, so I felt bad for the guy actually when I saw him after and you could see that he was not all there. Right. Uh, And, uh, and then they, they, the bad guys are picking on, on, on people of the society that can't make those judgments for themselves or are in a, in a worst off situation. Yeah. And, and the guy didn't want to do it. He just didn't want to be there. He didn't want to do all these things, but he had been coerced and, and, and forced to do these things. And I think that's exactly sort of the, the, the thing that still gives me chills when you tell that story, because I think you just, your mind never really goes there. When you're thinking of a suicide bomber, you think, you think very differently. You think about someone who has a very clear intention, who might have a really evil outlook on the world or, or just in their own outlook, they somehow feel justified in their actions. And then when you hear that this person was used as a tool against you know, against NATO forces or, or against this, this civilian town, it breaks your heart. Like it just, it, and it's shocking. And I think it changes the conversation a little bit in terms of who you're dealing with. And I think that, I mean, this is a completely different conversation, but I think in some respects, this mental health piece, when it comes to suicide bombers, or, you know, even, I mean, even to go as far as thinking about school shootings and anybody who kind of engages in that violence, it's really important to think about our assumptions. I think about what the backstory is and and not necessarily jump to conclusions about what that might be or, or what that impetus might be for, for someone doing this. Right. I think, I think this is such a great point that you're bringing because it's important for people to not do that, mm-hmm. right? Because we are so caught up with the social media one-liners and making a, an assumption, an opinion, or a call on something we have absolutely no idea about. Yeah. And, and people will go in. It's very easy. Trust me on that. When, when everybody's a bad guy, yes. it's really easy to do your job, right? You yeah. just, it's a bad guy, no problem. They're all this, they're all that. It just, it's easy. Yeah. But when you're saying, well, wait a minute, there's another side to this story. There's mm-hmm. actual families. There's actual, 
you know, these people are just trying to feed their kids. They're just, they've just been caught up in this war since the 80s with the Russians first and then this. And they've always been in, in a tribal feud anyways, from India trying to invade and all these things throughout sure. their history and Russia and all these things. But once you understand that, you're like, okay, well, that changes things. That requires way more work and energy for me mm-hmm. to be able to understand whatever social or, 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 or topic am I looking at? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people will bring, and, and it's part of mental health and everything in today's, uh, you know, gender fluid, all these things that are coming up that older generation aren't picking up. They're sure. like, they're not understanding. And, and, and I'm like, okay, so did you research it? Or are you just making a call saying it's stupid and I don't understand it and they should get their stuff together yes. and they should just figure it out. Cause that's, once again, that's easy to say. Yeah. I'm just going to go back and watch TV and send these people <laughs> that just messed up. Yes, exactly. Instead of saying, okay, and I'm that type of guy, just like you, Mo, that yes. I'm going to go straight to the person and I'm going to ask that question. Yeah. Why is it that you want to be called this? Yes. And they're going to go and I say, boom, this is why. Yes. Now you have an understanding and a different point of view. And you're like, okay, you can still make your opinion, but now it's based on actual true fact from somebody who's actually living it. Exactly. And I think it comes down to sort of that, what is the need that they're trying to fill on some level? But that, again, that's, that's a really big conversation. Um, I I would like to come back a little bit to this conditioning idea. So some of your personal story, and you've stated that you've, you've always felt well prepared by the Canadian military. And there's been a focus on sort of reducing sensitization or you know, to this traumatic environment. And I've listened to Jocko Willink, uh, the retired Navy SEAL and podcaster in the States. He's pretty popular. I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with him or not. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he is very popular. He's intense as well. He's intense. Right? And, and I'm he has some really um, interesting perspectives on, on yes. things, of course, but he's talked at length about the importance of desensitization and even on some level, this dehumanization of the other that has to take place in order to prepare the human mind for war. I mean, there's no sort of debating that on some level you need to compartmentalize what happens, right? And so yes. there's no place for fear. And you've said that you never really did feel fearful for your life while you were in Afghanistan. But you've also stated that when you entered the military, there was sort of a sense of brotherhood and and sort of this sense that the self gets replaced by the team, that you're not really allowed to whine or complain, and that there's an expectation that if there if anything should come up, that really you're encouraged to suffer in silence. So can you speak to the way that you were prepared for the war experience and why you think it's so important for individuals to go through this type of training? And then after that, I'd love to talk about sort of how this can stop serving you once you re-enter civilian life. Okay. Those are like a bunch of questions. Yes, they are. (laughs) (laughs) Faceted too. Uh, Okay. So let's start with the, uh, the first one. I think uh, if we start from the beginning on how to Canadian force, well, how all military that, you know, kind of follows the same protocol. Yes. um, Do like standard operating procedures, which is when you first join uh, the basic training, Yes, absolutely. They break you down mm-hmm. and they make you realize that is never, never, ever, ever about you. Mm-hmm. And to suffer in silence, you're absolutely right. It's one of the first things they tell you when you get off the bus, right? Yeah. I always tell this story about how it first started for me is that I went to basic training and you're coming like they, they bust me from Ottawa and I went to Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu there in Quebec at the big mega structure where they do the basic training. And you get there on your bus and you're there with like 50 strangers 
and you're like, okay. And then one guy comes on and he's, they're intimidating. Obviously they're yes. there and it's, it's, it's the, the game starts. Right. Right. And they go, okay, everybody shut up, get off the bus. And then that's it. It starts right there, right? And there's some people that have never been talking to you that way, right? So you're like, oh, oh that's just a day, a normal day for me with my parents. Yeah. So, so you get off the bus. And then as you get off the bus, everybody's like, doesn't know where to go, all these things. And then there's another guy out there that says, what are you guys doing off the bus? I never told you to come off the bus. Get back onto the bus right now. Oh, wow. So you get back on the bus and not the, the first thing they're doing is creating chaos. Right. Like to let you know, you don't know nothing. You don't know what's happening and right. you need to listen to what we're going to tell you. Mm. And basically you get back onto this bus. Now the guy who's inside the bus, who's still there, he's fuming because mm. you're getting back on the bus. Right. He's like, I you to get up, right? <laughs> so you get off the bus and then he's like, okay, you guys are obviously not listening. Get down in a push-up position and start pumping, right? Right. Now you're talking about people. Some people have never done any push-ups. Some people are like, you can do barely enough to pass the, the physical test and all these things. And then people start, you know, they get you to pump and then you obviously get tired. Yeah. And then people start to moan and groan and all these things. And the first thing they tell you, I don't want to hear you suffer in silence. Mm. And there's a need for that. Right. Because if you're on the battlefield and yeah. you hear somebody screaming and moaning, you're going to pay attention to that. Right. But if you keep your mouth shut and you right and you you just focus on what you need to do, that's what the purpose of it all. Right. Right. So once again, it starts right there. There's a purpose for it. Right. And you're absolutely right. The minute you start, you know, folding your clothes, doing all your thing, it makes sense once you get why. Because we got such a serious job to do. Yeah. And we need to be conditioned to do that serious job. And you're right about the desensitization, the dehumanization. You have to do that to be able to do that kind of work. Right. It's just the way it is. And just so you know, the Canadian forces are even more kind of like, we're really big on our humanitarian yes, work. Yes, yes. And so everywhere that we go, we always have teams of rebuilding. And so that's why we're always in high demand. Like people, when there's either a tragedy, a, um, a war or something like that, they constantly ask for Canada to come because we're very neutral mm -hmm. and we're there for the local population to kind of rebuild what needs to be done. Yes. And, and then, so that kind of helps us out in a way that knowing that we're doing that. Yes. Compared to just a war fighting role. Sure. I think it, I think it suits us best as Canadians. Me too. And, and then that's why we're also very well respected. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but to come back to the conditioning, it starts right from there. Right. And then we, 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 throughout your career, you continue to carry on and build on to that. And every time that you go to an other specialty course, or like for me, I went uh, paratrooper, then I went mountain ops, and then I went, you know, a diver and then bomb tech and all these things. And at every level that you do, there's more demand of you, but you also get within a better kind of, kind of better kind of crew as well. Right. Because as you get higher, it gets harder to get through, right? So mm -hmm. to be a diver, like a Navy diver, we started, I think for my selection, we started like 50 and we finished eight, wow. right? Wow. Like eight and people, eight, eight, eight people, people made it through. Three officers and five uh, uh, rank, purple from their rank. We call them NCM, non-commissioned members. Right. So, um, so there was five of us and three officers that finished out of the 50, right? So that's, that's actually normal. When I went on my paratrooper course, we started... I think that was it, 53, I think, and we finished 20-something. Wow. 
So it's uh, these things, that's what it's designed for. And you want to be able to, it kind of like pumps you up when other people don't quite make it or something like that. It's kind of like a little of a selfish thing, but the thing is that that's what gets you through. And then you start hanging out with people that are like-minded and that are going to make it through. Right. right. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And I think that whole piece about, I think it's on some level, it's that ego piece, but it's, but it's the thing that helps you to push past when it hurts or when it feels too hard to do. And, and also gives you that, that confidence to say that you've earned this, this place in the upper levels of the hierarchy, because it is a hierarchical system, right? So yeah. that's kind of the, the trade-off is, but you keep rising and you keep sort of getting that, um, just that, that reward, right? Which is, which is important. I think if, if that wasn't sort of built into it on some level, maybe it wouldn't be as effective. I don't know. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? And then the, the rewards are bigger, but the, also the demand on you are mm, bigger as mm-hmm. well. You're demanded to leave more, do more, more training, constantly training and all that, right? Our special forces train daily yes, all year long. And it's, it's a perishable skills and they need to be on top of their game all the time. Right. Right. Um, so, so yeah. And to come back to the training that we have, because you also ask about the team aspect of everything mm-hmm. is that they break you down and they build you back up to care about the person next to you. Right. So you don't care about you, but you care about the person next to you. And that is so much more powerful, mm. right? Because I'm going to give you an example in the civilian world is that, you know, so a lot of people, I, I own a gym. Yeah. And we're going to take the, the, my favorite one, moms, right? Mm-hmm. Moms will put everybody else before themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they come and see me and says, Bruno, I haven't worked out in 10 years. I got this success weight. I want to do these things. And you're like, why not? Because mm-hmm. I was taking care of everybody else. Yes. The, the onus is put that you're more valuable if you put your, if you care about other people. Right. Right. And you're, you're, you care about the guy next to you and everything and all that, because when it comes down to it, you'll see it. That's why people, you know, um, don't achieve their goals or they, you know, they put on weight or they do all these things because they just, they just don't have that, that care as much as they have for others. Yes. For does themselves. That make sense? It does. does that right. Exactly. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And so you're so, saying that that's an important piece on some level as well, though, is to sort of dig into filling your own bucket before, before you, or as well as meeting the needs of others. Right. So in the military, it's all about meeting the needs of the team, the mission before self. Right. 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 And so you have to do that. And that's the way. And it's, it serves this purpose. And it's really, really good. Yes. When you get out, when we're done, mm-hmm. then that's something you need to change. Mm-hmm. It's something you need to adapt, especially depending on what it is you're going to do next. Right. Yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. So I went into, you know, taking care of other sufferers and all these things. Mm-hmm. And it was a good healing and it was good to a certain point until it was too much. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I was falling behind and I wasn't charging my batteries. And, and I go through that during the year, right? Where I need to recognize that I need to pull myself back and actually take time for self-care. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is, this is a really good time, I think, in the conversation. Now that we really understand some of your background and some of the training that you've had. And I think what's really surprising for me to realize is that when you came back, your I'd like you to tell the story, but essentially we have this idea that it's it's some of the trauma that we had or that that you may have had during during combat that you sort of felt those effects immediately that 
that perhaps even on the plane ride back that you would have been having some some symptoms of post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic injury right away. And I'd like to dig in a little bit to what it was like to return to sort of civilian life. And I know you were still serving, but what that was like for you and what happened kind of in the coming months and even year that made you feel like maybe things had changed for you a little bit? Right, right. So um, that is a very uh, big misconception as well, right? Coming back um, and, and feeling it right away. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't because um, although on my second tour, from seeing some of my friends from previous tours, I knew that with the tempo that we went through and everything that we did, that it was a big possibility of it happening, right? right? So I was really aware of it. So when you come back and you do your decompression um, administration and all these things, uh, you come in and you turn in your passport and you turn in your kit and you get make sure you're good and you go see the doc and you go see these guys and they give you shots and make sure all your things are in order, you know, and that you're healthy. Yeah. Um, that's when they always ask you, would you like to see someone at mental health? And right. I, I, I ticked that box and I said, yes, I'll be just be proactive and go in and and talk. And <laughs> unfortunately, and it's not out of disrespect or anything like that, but uh, I got this old psychiatrist who's been, <laughs> I think he was in when, you know, when Jesus was a corporal. It was like, <laughs> it was in for the longest time. Um, and then, uh, but he was like very focused on kind of like, uh, certain questions wasn't like really flowing with what yes. I needed to do. And so uh, he was asking questions. I think he was working on his thesis and I think he was asking questions towards anger or, or anger management uh, or stuff like that. Okay. And at the time it wasn't the case. And he was trying to pinpoint one incident itself Yes. Um, at a time where you don't even know, right? You don't, right. You, and, and to tell you that, like it's been what 2009, my tour was and now, and, and I can tell you that it's not one incident. It's yes. the whole thing and and just so you know not just the tour it's previous right once you understand mental health and trauma and neural pathways and everything yeah you're like okay this is it it's, it's the 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 tour made it and what i saw and what i did made it like the glass too full yes but it's it's in you know it's this buildup of, yeah. of, of everything so um so yeah so so basically it's sort of the context and i think i think how you can frame trauma too is it's like it's it's in your senses it's in the way you know the smells and all the things that can take you back to that to that experience as as a whole context right and so so you've noted before that it took you three separate visits to the doctor to finally agree Mm. with her diagnosis so you wound up actually seeking help from another doctor and I believe, and, and you can always correct me if, if I've got my facts wrong, but I can't help but think that that stigma of and that sort of that fear associated with mental illness must have stood in the way. And I know from my own personal experience that when one identifies as sort of a strong, unbreakable person on the deepest level kind of of your soul, it can be mm-hmm. really, really difficult to admit when things aren't going well because our identity is so wrapped up in the armor and the strength. And you kind of wonder, who am I beyond that? And when you see little fissures and breaks in, in that, it can be really frightening as well. So we sort of cling to what we know and the certainty of our strength, even though it might be a fallacy on some level. So even leading us to self-destruct. So how did you first notice that you weren't really feeling like yourself and what propelled you to kind of go beyond that first sort of elderly psychiatrist and, and dig a little deeper? Right, right. So uh, to come back to the doctor, it was the same doctor. It was our unit doctor. Oh, it was, yeah. Our, yeah, her name was Christina. She was great. A civilian doctor and she was fantastic. Um, it was just like, you're right. You get this, 
like, think about it. You're a guy who jumps out of plane, who's a bomb tech, who's a diver, who's like top shape, top everything. And then all of a sudden you get angry, super easy. You're not sleeping. You're getting flashback. You're, you know, you're jerk. You're jerking your knees all the time. You're like scared. Like these things that you've never felt before are starting to happen. And most of the time you don't even know what they are. Cause if you've never had anxiety or depression or anything like that, you, you can't tell what they are. Yeah. Right. You just know that something's wrong. Right. So when, you know, when something's wrong and you're not sleeping and all these things, that's the first thing I think I went to see her with. I was like, Hey doc, uh, this is what I'm, what's happening. You know, I'm not sleeping well and everything. And you kind of like downplay it too. Right. Because sure. you know, it's ego and pride and all these things. So, uh, she's obviously not getting the full diagnosis, but she's not stupid either. Right. And she's yes. like, well, Bruno, I think this is uh, this is it, right? I think you got some symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury, or uh, and then uh, anxiety and depression, all these things. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's right, Doc. Right? So uh, I think I'm going to carry on and do my thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And then I, again, you know, a second time and saying, hey. Uh, I don't know where you went to school, but I don't think you're making the right diagnosis. And basically, <laughs> it's go, going up, going up this big river in Egypt, right? Yeah. And going up denial, and you know, like, and then on the third time when I went to see her is because I really had a plan, and I was at the end of my rope, and it was it was going to be over, and right. I, you know, I needed to look after my little guy, so I decided one last time to go and see her and accept the help. Mm. And uh, the minute I said yes, like it was, it was kind of pretty comical when you think about it because I was sitting on you know these little beds which got a paper blanket on it right you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying like in, yep. in the doctor's exam room and I said okay doc this is what's happening this is the plan this is where I'm going to do it this is what it is I just can't take it anymore you got to do something mm. and she goes well Bruno you got PTSD and yes. we can help you but only if you take the help do you want it and I go yes she got up right away made some phone calls and I was gone within wow. 15 minutes I was over at mental health Wow. And uh, and then they had medication for me and all these things, which was extremely important mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's how it went. And basically, it's just about this this back and forth of 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 a fight between your pride and your ego and exactly what needs to happen. But the body's so well designed that you just get tired about it. Right. You just get exhausted. And the thing is, is that it goes two way. You either kind of say, OK, I'm going to make a call here and reach out for help or uh, unfortunately some people uh, don't make it there right and they, they, right. They, they take their own lives and and they, 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 they call it quits and and the only thing we need to do is just open that conversation and and, and you know have them reach out and reach out to them and make sure we're all talking about it and making sure it's okay right well and and I think this is where I'd like to to talk a little further because I you know, I've been doing a bit of research about this. And in a recent study, which was released at the end of 2017, I think in December, we learned that approximately 1500 former military members ended their lives from 1976 to 2012. And that's only the the numbers on record, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one third of those were suicides um, occurring after 2012, when Canada was really entrenched in that Afghanistan war. So I think about you within that that sort of demographic and it's it's shocking, you know. And and you know, young men face the greatest suicide risk government researchers found and they said that I think they were something like 2.5 times more likely to commit suicide than the comparable general population. So that's a worrisome finding, right? And I can't help but think that you could have been one of these statistics and you've mentioned before that you you had made a plan and and you had a date and all of these things like what 
what would you say was your self-talk at that point? And what would you say to somebody who might be feeling that way right now, whether they are a service person or they have experienced trauma in their life that has Mm -hmm. brought them to a point where it feels as though there's no other way out. And I think this is the piece that's really, really important because I think it can feel very, very hopeless. And to know that somebody has been in that situation and has found a way out and is living, living to tell the tale and actually living a very successful life is a really important message. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing, right? It's it, what the, one of my favorite things to say and do and see the transformation right in front of my eyes is this, is that PTSI, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, all these things, they don't discriminate, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't matter if I went to war or uh, if you had a traumatic event when you were a kid or if somebody saw you know, a bad accident or you're a paramedic or a, or a firefighter or a cop or a teacher who just saw something terrible like their school shootings and all mm-hmm. these things that are happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't discriminate. You get the same symptoms, the same everything as I do. Mm-hmm. Right. So that right there is telling you that trauma is trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just you're just going to go through it. And the thing is, is that you need to find that one thing that's going to make that difference for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, for me, it was my son at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like uh, when I was growing up, uh, my dad was gone all the time working and doing these things. So he wasn't there when I was growing up. So but the thing is, was for me, it was really important. And I was like, I need to do something. So last one chance, I'm going to go and try. And I was fortunate because I had that doctor to do that. Mm. And now what I do when I talk to people and when I work with them and then when I, you know, uh, either for my course or for my book or whatever it is, is that actually the accountability is on the sufferer itself, Mm. right? You need to to reach out. You need to research. You need to find what's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. You could have the best doctor in the world, the best psychiatrist, the best family members, the best everything. But if you don't do the work, they can't do nothing for you. There's nothing they can do for you. It's you that needs to do it. And the thing is, is that you need to do it because suicide doesn't end the pain. It just reassigns it. Mm. Right? That's so, so, can you just say that again? I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. Suicide doesn't end the pain. It just reassigns it to your loved ones. That's right. Right? I think that's that's a really a key thing to remember because because when when someone is in their head so much that all they see is their own pain, it can be really easy, I think, to forget about the ripple effect of that. And I right. think for some people I've heard that that in itself has been enough to kind of jolt them back to, okay, I need to I need to seek help. I need to call mental health. I need to call my doctor because this this isn't just about me this is about some of the other people around me as well I think that's important right and then once you start taking the accountability and actually getting a proper diagnosis and getting you know finding out what it is you actually have Mm -hmm. then you can start doing something about it and then the important part is to be like a master communicator Mm. to all your loved ones because the only thing they want to do is that they want to help you Mm -hmm. they just don't know how we just you know as humans we just want to fix and make things better and then for for something like mental health you can't fix it and you can't do anything it's called Mm well-being right it's not called well-doing it's well-being so you have to find these things that you can 
do and be and like meditation and, and, you know, and isolation and reading and activities and sports and advanced technology and pharmaceuticals and all these things to make sure that you have the quality of life that you deserve and that you should have. Mm -hmm. But the only person that can do that, once again, it's you. Yes, I think that's really important. What would you say, so you're, you're, I know you well, or, or fairly well, and I know that fitness has played a really big part in your life, and, and I've, I've read that you had a really incredible experience with nature in the North Pole of all places, which I just think is so incredible and inspiring, but it was a really healing experience. Can you speak to some of you know the ways that fitness and then your connection to nature have brought you maybe not always back to center because I think this concept of balance is sort of a fallacy. We don't always feel balanced, but I think it can anchor us. It can remind right. us of who we are and how has fitness and sort of this nature piece really uh, done that for you? Right. So uh, fitness, obviously for me, uh, what it did was um, at a time when I was like recovering right at the beginning of it all. So we're talking about 2011, 2012, and I'm on medication and I'm doing these things and I've lost a lot of weight. Like mm -hmm. I'm down to a hundred and I'll say 198. I don't think I've been 198 pounds since I was like 15. So, <laughs> that, that, you know, and I was like, you I are was... tall and big, so I can definitely <laughs> see that. <laughs> so, but the thing is, is that, um, I asked my questions because I was on, on so many medication at the time and I was like not feeling the best. What it does is that when you're on the medication, it gives you that kind of like that break mm -hmm. and you can breathe and it gives you a chance to put your feet under you and then get back, you know, on track and all these things. But the thing is that you don't feel the pain, but you don't so also don't feel joy. Yeah. It's just very flat line, which right. gets you through your days and gets you, gives you a chance to get back on track. But I was like, what was I doing when I was at the top of my game? What was I doing consistently every day? Mm -hmm. And that was working out, obviously, with the military, morning PT, um, you know, you go out for your runs, you do your things. And, you know, being a diver, it was, you know, the first thing, the priority we had to do. Um, but it was that. And then so I said, OK, I'm going to start working out again. And mm -hmm. I did with little five minute workouts here and it got into 10 minutes and it got again 15 minutes and then it got grew bigger. And then people started joining in and then, you know, the gym and all these things. But yes. basically what it does is that it, it creates a. Uh, when you have mental health or when you have uh, some of these issues is a chemical imbalance. Yes. And uh, when you work out, it releases endorphins and it makes you feel good right away. Mm -hmm. But it also gives you a sense of accomplishment because you're feeling good about yourself, but you also accomplish something in your day yes. at a time when you think you're broken. Yes. So for me, that was very, very powerful. And, and then when I got the call to go to the North Pole with True Patriot Love, the largest expedition ever uh, above the Arctic Circle, which was 53 people. Wow. And we have 12 Ill and, Ill and injured soldiers. One couldn't even walk, so we had to pull them there, which was pretty amazing. Wow. And then uh, it, they, they also made a, a documentary about it, which yes. is called March to the Pole. Yes. A really good um, a documentary. But uh, going to the up north was... I didn't bring any electronics. I didn't bring anything. And we basically walked there wow. 140 kilometers, pulling your own stuff. And it's just complete silence. Like, I don't think unless you've been up there, I don't think that anybody has experienced that type of silence. Mm. It's actually pretty freaky because <laughs> let's say you go to the forest here or you go somewhere where it's quiet. There's no cars. There's no nothing. There's still the sound of bugs and of, of the trees and the wind and all these things. Sure. 
when you're up north, there's none of that. Wow. It's just quiet. The only thing you hear is your own breathing. You're, you're stepping on the snow or the people around you. Right. And, and then your thoughts. <laughs> your thoughts and you're left there and you can't escape them, right? Right. When you're here, um, which is something that I brought, bring up and I talk to people, is that we, it's so easy to just change the channel. Yes. Right? You mm-hmm. just, like, let's say we're going through a hard time and you're like, I'm not even going to deal with this hard time. I'm just going to put on some music or I'm going to put on a show and I'm just going to switch off for a bit. Yeah. And going to the North Pole, I couldn't do that. I was left with my thoughts and actually have to deal with what I needed to deal with. But it was so therapeutic Hmm. and it was so amazing. And when I got to the North Pole and I left all my problems up there, it was life changing Hmm. because it's so clean and it's so serene and you can actually see the curvature of the earth. And it's incredible. We, We have such a beautiful country. It's like not even like funny. It's like amazing. We do. And, yeah. And, and the North Pole is just a perfect example of that, of how clean and pristine it is. And to have gone and done that expedition, um, I, I always recommend it to everybody to go and do these, these extreme adventures hmm. because it, it demands that you step out of your own stuff and, and get things done. And for some of us, that's very, very good. I think that's really good advice and, and also that physical bit because as you said, I know that you've done a lot of research about the brain and neuroplasticity and then the PTS, in, you know, the injuries. And in many ways, you were conditioned, you conditioned your brain a certain way through your basic training and your experiences and sort of shut down a lot of a lot of the natural tendency to sort of tune into your your neurobiological tendencies, which is very human, right? In terms of the the fight, flight, or freeze to danger, and then that may or may not have created that you know chemical imbalance, as you said. And so, by doing those things, how how would you say that you're able to retrain that circuitry in your brain? Like, what have you what have you found out about the things that you do that can actually create lasting change? Well, that's, that's exactly it, right? When you feel good about yourself after a workout. So when I do work with vets mm-hmm. and they come in and they, they, they're triggered, they can't even talk, they're like, oh, this is a bad day or whatever. And we start getting moving. And obviously, you know, most of the time they don't want to start moving. Sure. You know, and I don't even want to be here. And blah, blah, blah. you start <laughs> moving and start feeling good. And then they feel great, right? Mm-hmm. And they finish the workout and they're feeling awesome. And they always say, thank you so much. And, you know, they're very emotional and all these things. And mm-hmm. then that's where I do most of my work. Yeah. Because that's when I say, hey, when's the last time did you communicate with your wife that you you really love her and you love your kids and all these things? When's the last mm-hmm. time did you communicate how you are when you're triggered and what are your needs? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when's the last time that you actually said some really nice stuff about you? Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's the time when to do it. And then when you do it, then then the brain is primed to create new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what you do. So if you start, you know, talking about positive things, we know about the power of positive thinking and positive, positive talking. Yes. And rewires the brain. So if you start doing it on, on consistency after you work out and all yes. these things, that's when you rewire your brain. That's how you create new neural pathways and what they call muscle memories and all these things. So if you start associating working out with feeling good and doing great things, then that's exactly what happens. I love it. Yes. And I think even that gratitude piece, as you said, about your family and, and creating those really meaningful connections, there's been so much research about happiness and that relation to 
the people around us. And if we can kind of key into that gratitude practice and as well sort of really make tangible efforts to create lasting, really strong relationships, as you said, by expressing our love for the, the people that we care about and, and really reaching out to them, that that belonging is enough to carry us through sometimes, knowing that we belong no matter what, no matter how we're showing up, that people love us and, and that mm-hmm. we matter to them. Yes, we do. We absolutely do. And that's the thing, right? That's another kind of like little dark story that we tell each other when we're suffering, that mm-hmm. we're actually uh, creating pain for other people and we should pull away. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's, it's fictitious, right? It's yep. like, like if somebody, you saw somebody suffering, you, you don't want them to pull away. You want to help them. Of course. Right. So, but we think we're different. We try to think we're, we're kind of special and nobody loves us. Right. And we need to pull away. And it's not, it's not true. That's it. It's, actually, I... it's, it's, it's fictitious, right? It's, it, it's this, uh, I don't know if I can say bullshit, but it's a bullshit story. <laughs> sure. <right? laughs> exactly. I totally agree. Right. Yes. Yeah. Being mindful of your time. I, I want to zip into those rapid fire questions, but before, yeah. before we do, I just want to ask you a little bit from a teacher perspective, supporting a child or even a parent with PTSD or PTSI, often we become, you know, we, we can come in contact with vets or, or actual parents who have who have had traumatic experiences in in their past and it can be important for us to respond effectively to those needs and even to the way that they present and and maybe not sort of react you know with the behavior that we see in front of us so mm-hmm. many children coming through the system kind of have this post traumatic stress as well what would you say would be an effective way to sort of hold space for for people who may have had experience with trauma or may even have and suffer from PTSD type symptoms right um you know that's one of the things with with, with kids right now they're having PTSD and anxiety and depression and all that and yes um uh, often is caused by what I kind of coined you know secondhand PTSD is mm-hmm. what uh, the family and the loved ones um kind of like get from being with someone who's suffering from PTSD because they're not too sure who's walking through the door yeah. and they, they, they feel helpless and they feel like they can't help and all these things. So, um, so when that happens and then you have either somebody who's suffering in front of you and they're going through a hard time and all these things, it's very important to try to not fix anything. Mm. It's the first thing we go, right? If somebody breaks an arm, we want to, you know, we want to fix that. If somebody did that, you know, we want to do, we want to take action. We want to do something. But sometimes uh, when somebody's triggered, they're not even receptive. Yeah. They're just caught up in their own thing. And then for you to kind of like go in there and try to ask questions that would, they probably can't even answer you mm-hmm. um, is, is just creating more chaos, more noise, more stress. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, the best thing to do is just be with the person and mm-hmm. say, yeah, I'm fine. We're, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to go anywhere. Um, what is it that you want to do? Can, do, we, do we just sit here? Do we just enjoy the time and just do these things? Basically, when you have a kid, um, uh, kids are, are actually pretty resilient and they're pretty awesome in, in, in telling you what's going on. They just use different words, right? Yes. Uh, like tummy ache or I'm not feeling so good or I'm sick or I'm doing these things, right? So it's about yes. being there for him and, and, and having that conversation. Kids will talk way more than, than adults will. Yes. And, and, and you can have that conversation and, and, and be able to talk that out. I love but, it. Yeah, but uh, the thing is, is that once again, it's about 
you know, when, when a kid is going through a thing, it's not just trying to fix it, but trying to, to understand what's going on. Yeah. Because, you know, like, like you said, like, let's say we're at a grocery store and then you see somebody uh, and then we'll call him a veteran and he's having an episode right now with the cashier. And the thing is that it's too easy to go. I'm not even going to look at that. I'm going to go to another checkout mm-hmm. or I'm going to, you know, because that's what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, right? Making an assumption right away yes. and going, this guy's messed up yeah. or this person and I don't want to be around it or anything like that instead of understanding what's going on and how can you be of assistance or be in there. Right. And I found that even, um, fortunately for me, um, when I see stuff like that, and if, if it's a veteran or a police officer or somebody who's first responder, then I can relate right away Yeah. and I can say, Hey, I understand what you're going through. Can I, uh, I try not to word, use words like, help or assist or anything like they're weak or they're, they're yes. in need of something. Yes. But I'm like, Hey, is there anything I can do right now? Is there anything that, you know, that we can, we can facilitate here or something like that? Would yeah. you like to talk? Uh, right. And then yeah. some people pick it up and some other people, uh, you know, uh, uh, they don't, they're and, not ready. but yeah. they're not ready. And that's, that's fine. That's okay. And, and that's the whole point about when I talk about mental health is that that's okay. Yes. It's okay not to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going through a breakdown is actually what creates a breakthrough. Mm. But in today's society, we're so afraid of breaking down. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, you know, just so you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm going through one right now that, mm. I'm, <laughs> that I've been going back and forth about, you know, what to do next. Yes. And the thing is that, you know, we're going through a hard time. We're, we're, we're not sleeping. We're not eating well. We're not doing these things. And we're doing our workouts, but they're not effective. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so know something's going on and most people will go over and say hey doctor I'm not feeling well right now things are falling apart give me a pill yes and and there's a place for that there is a place and I'm a big advocate for medic me- medication and all these things but the thing is is that we we are will 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 you know, people turn to alcohol and yes. drugs self-medicate and, yes self-medicate and do these things and they or they'll watch tv or they'll do everything to try to prevent this breakdown and to numb it out numb it out instead of actually letting it happen and see because on the other side of every breakdown that I had has always been a breakthrough and something way better wow right Mm -hmm. the the, the brain knows that the the universe knows if you want to use that sure what needs to happen and 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 we're just conditioned to say no no we can't because Mm -hmm. if we break down people think I'm crazy and people will not be my friends. Yes. And, you know, which is the, the world's biggest fear now. It used to be public speaking. Now it's what uh, people's uh, impression of you is. Yes. Right? Yes. Social media and all these things. So yeah. people are more worried about what other people think of themselves. And they, they, they'll, they'll not do anything. They'll be sick. They'll stay sick. Like mm-hmm. when I talk to people about mental health and about medication, right? They're like, oh, I, I, people come up to me and say, oh, Bruno, I went back on my medication because I was having a hard time and but you know what I want to work out and I want to do me things so I, I want to come off mm-hmm. and I'm like why yeah why like, is that well, the goal well, yeah what because I, I shouldn't be on this I should be off why mm-hmm. and they go well because because of what if it gives you a good quality of life and it makes you your, your life better and it gets you to work out and go outside and do these things with your family why would you want to stop that yes and I think but, it comes back to this idea of what life feels like it should be or how you should be showing up for life and when we get rid of those shoulds that we can just be instead of kind of striving for this totally false ideal of what what it means to be successful or you know whatever sort of ideal we're shooting for I think that's such an important message so thank you for thank you for sharing that 
Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for your vulnerability, because I think sometimes, again, you go back to this, oh, this guy on paper, man, he's got it all figured out. Life must just be roses. And I think we, anyone knows, you know, there's always a bit of a struggle and, and that's not always visible. And I think with social media, it's often not visible, but it's, it's an incredibly important thing for people to see. Yes. Yes. Because it's not, nobody's got their stuff together. That's it. (laughs) It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it just looks great, right? You, when you put it on paper, I look great. <laughs> if you see here me every day and you live with me, you're going to say, man, this guy, this guy's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can identify with that for sure. We I'm all just have lucky our... enough to be a mess and, and be able to run other things at the same time. So. <laughs> oh, Mitigate damage. Yeah. Oh, so good. So um, I would like to zip into the rapid fire if you're, if you're game. Woo! Let's okay. Do Could you define what kindness means to you? Uh, kindness is exactly what you would like the world to be. Mm. It's exactly the best version of you. Because mm. everybody uh, in their hearts, um, we all wake up in the morning to want to be loved. Mm. And we know what that feels like. Mm. We just, you know, there's two emotions, love and fear. And yeah. we just give into fear a little bit more. So kindness is all about being that best version of you. I think it is for me. I love that. What book or books have you gifted most often to people? Uh, the Five Love Languages. Mm, that's a good one. It's an amazing book. Yep. I think that uh, people should read that. Yeah. Yeah. What one skill or superpower does a teacher need to lead with in order to be effective? Oh, teachers. First of all, these teachers are heroes. Hmm. Yeah. Because they're the one who are forming young minds to, to lead the world into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, teachers' super skills, oh, compassion mm-hmm. and understanding. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Compassion yeah. and understanding. To have the, all these, you know, you have like, how many kids do you guys have? Like 30 to 40 or something like it, that? Or? Yeah, it can range kind of from 25 to 30, 35, depending on if you're in the States, right? Right, totally. Right. That, that's 35 different brains and hearts and yes values and beliefs and all these things you've got to be on top of your game to be a teacher and can motivate these young minds <laughs> uh, I volunteer at my son's school and uh and I was a soccer coach and everything there's only so much time <laughs> that I can dedicate to other people's kids yes uh, to be honest with so uh you know what my hat's off to you guys I think super skills would be like the patience of angels <laughs> Thank you. What about for a principal or or an educational leader who's leading all of these teachers? Yes, that's a very good question. I think that once you get to the top, the the point of uh, principal and educational leader, um, you need to kind of change your focus Mm. on taking care. You become your primary duty is to take care of those teachers so that they can continue to do that. Yeah. So would that be in resources, uh, finances, uh, uh, material, uh, you know, education, professional development, yes. um, you know, making sure that you create that environment for them to be able to do that job as best as they can. Yeah. I think when you become a principal, you're basically like a CEO That's and you right. need to be able to take care of that, make sure your team runs smoothly. So they can take care of the students. I love yeah. it. Finally, what message or quote would you print on one of those quote cups that are sold in big bookstores that would be read by millions of people? Okay. I, the, my favorite one is the world won't be destroyed by evil men, but by good men who sit there and do nothing. Oh, that's so good. 
That's so a that's, great one. that's my favorite go-to and it kind of goes along with how you do anything. How you do everything is how you do anything, right? This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating a kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog, for more information. Now I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.